0: Amen. Good singing, everybody. Thank you, musicians. Welcome, Boy Scouts. It's always an honor to have you and your leaders. Thank you for being here. And thank you for being here, especially if you don't have power. Uh, I took a glance at my head as I was coming down here. See, I have what looks to be hat head, but really it's headlamp head because uh, I got dressed with my headlamp today and uh, so glad to see lights and feel warmth. Our text this morning is Revelation. I'm glad to be back in the pulpit. Let me remind you of gospel priorities in the month of January, the themes we heard. If you weren't able to hear the sermons, please go back to the the audio library and listen to them. We started out the month I preached on Christian mind and then we had uh, Walter Strickland from Southeastern Seminary, preached on a Christian worldview morning and evening. And then we had Hans Maduemi from Covenant College, who preached on a cultural our cultural mandate, our calling as Christians in this world. And then in the evening, demonstrated what what medical ethics looks like. He's a physician as well as a theologian, and addressed physician-assisted suicide. Taught us how to think biblically about such things. And then the third week, Robert Kim from Covenant Seminary preached on um, the biblical view of justice and biblical view of reconciliation. And then last week, uh, Todd Erickson preached on gender and sexuality morning, morning and evening. That was second to none. Please listen to all of those. And uh, last week uh, included, especially on a very, very, pressing subject we need to think Christianly about. Thank you, Todd, for that, those excellent messages. And now we return to the book of Revelation. If you're visiting with us, you think this is really strange. Uh, you may feel like the last few days have been apocalyptic for you, but uh, they are. this is good news. We've been learning from the book of Revelation, and we've learned that it's not so hard to understand after all if we keep the big picture. In fact, let me teach you, show you, if you're visiting with us, how easy it is to understand the book of Revelation. Here is what 2nd Prez is going to tell you Revelation is all about. It's two words. Second prayers, what is it? Jesus wins. That's the big idea. And it falls out in four different, uh, four different pieces. Uh, but uh, but uh, here, here is the summary. In chapters 1 to 3, Jesus teaching us. The king, the king. It's all about the kingdom. The king teaches us. And then uh, it's the king who protects us in chapters 4 through 16. 4 through 15. And then 16 to 19, 16 through 20, it's the king who liberates us. And finally, in the last couple of chapters, it's the king who celebrates us. We've been spending most of our time in that longest section the king liberates us. He liberates us by judging and defeating the devil in his kingdom. And we're still in that theme. In fact, we're coming to the very end of it here in chapter 20 where he says, for the seventh time, you see, we don't, we, he repeats it over and over again. There are several series of sevens. And for the seventh time, he says, the devil himself is going to be destroyed and all evil too. He has said that now seven times. It's as if John takes us around one scene. It's one scene of Jesus bringing an end to all his and our enemies. He says, I want you to look at it from over here. And then he moves and says, look at it from here. Look at it from here. He does this seven times. It's not seven different judgments. It's all the same judgment from de- described from different vantage points. And here is the most powerful of all in verses one through 10 of Revelation chapter 20. And here is contained in these verses a surprise. Not a surprise for the early church, but a surprise for the modern church for how Jesus is ruling and reigning and conquering, even when it looks like we are losing. You ready for some good news? Verse 1, chapter 20. I saw an angel coming down from heaven He must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In college, I took a very interesting history class, the history of the Vietnam War, and my professor said, and the author agreed. The author of our textbook agreed that that the real secret to the North Vietnamese victory over America, the most powerful army on the earth, the real secret to that victory was the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Ho Chi Minh was the North Vietnamese leader of that uh, nation that took over the southern part of the country. And and the Americans named the trail by which the supplies came from the north to the south. The Americans named it the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but the Vietnamese called it the strategic supply route. There were over 12,000 miles of trails from the north to the south. And 240 tons of supplies brought daily from the north to the military in the south. The Americans tried everything to disrupt that flow. They flew over a thousand sorties, bombing runs. They 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 seeded clouds. And to make it rain constantly, to make it muddy. They, Dow Chemical, developed a, a substance that would permanently destabilize the soil. CIA operatives tried to interrupt it. Nothing worked. In fact, four fuel lines were eventually, pipelines were installed. And and, four, and the trails were paved four lanes wide. Nothing ever stopped the flow of supplies from the north to the south until the most powerful army on the face of the earth admitted defeat. There is a secret supply line from heaven to the church and nothing can stop it. No matter what attacks, that supply line fueled by King Jesus himself in the church on the earth continues to make advances. And the more intense the devil's opposition, even if he kills us by the droves our text teaches us, the more he kills us, the more he opposes us, the more powerful the forward movement of the gospel becomes. There is a secret supply line from heaven to earth and the church of Jesus Christ, because of Christ, continues to move forward regardless of our impression. Paul, Jesus, through John, assures us of victory in the future. We're used to that. We'll cover that. Verses 7 to 10. But he also assures us of victory now. But a victory that you and I, especially as citizens of the West, find it hard to imagine. But a victory nonetheless. Let's look, first of all, at the victory that will occur in the future. Verses 7 through 10. Here he promises that uh, the worse the opposition becomes, the more powerful Jesus' church on earth is. Just this week, one of our young residents, one of our residents, uh, our advanced resident, who operates on the, on the front line of the most uh, distressed medical situations in Memphis we, we met to talk about a, a medical ethics issue, and, and uh, she had been up all night uh, you know, supervising other residents, and she and shed she some tears in my office saying, sometimes sometimes I feel like Jesus isn't winning. Sometimes the darkness overwhelms me. It seems like it's so powerful. I wonder, what are, what are we about? Is it worth it? And I said, I can identify with you at times. I understand. This is the way Christians uh, do feel at times. We wonder, is Jesus winning or losing? Because it appears that where we are, in our particular circumstance, that he's losing. That we must never lose sight of what is promised in this book, which was written originally to Christians who were being persecuted. He says Jesus is winning and Jesus will finally win. He will finally be victorious over the devil. Do you know that there were centuries when in the early centuries of the church, when the church universally believed this was the truth, that the church was making advances, that the devil was on the run In those first five centuries of the church, the church believed that. But you say, now I know a little bit about church history, and don't I remember that the church was being severely persecuted in those early centuries? How could they be so confident? Because they read this book. They read in this book that Jesus wins. They believed it. They believed it in their souls. They believed it with faith regardless of what they saw by sight. What changed? Here's what changed. It became more comfortable to be a Christian. It became more comfortable as, 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 as the church, as the gospel spread. It became more comfortable to the point that uh, the Roman Empire was identified as a Christian empire, and when it became very comfortable to be a Christian, Christians began to live indulgently to live materialistically to think, well, if we 're priests and kings and and all the earth belongs to us and Jesus forgives our sins, we can do whatever we want to we we can make as much and 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 and, and secure as much and hoard as much as we want we can We can live indulgently and carelessly mor- morally and and, and we can, we can ignore uh, that, that, that calling to live for Christ alone. We can kind of blend in with the rest of culture and, and, and go to church on Sundays and, and really blend in the rest of the week and live quite comfortably. The church ceased to be salt and light. Then the end of the Roman Empire came. And Christians uh, lamented that and said, Oh no, the, the, the whole kingdom of Christ is fallen because our political empire is fallen. And they lived in despair. And they essentially gave the world over to Islam, to other religions. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound familiar to our own Christianity? It's become quite comfortable. We blend in. It doesn't cost us anything. And if it does start to cost us something, we figure out a way to blend in. We cherish our comfort to the point that we've ceased to be salt and light. Our neighbors don't even know we're Christians. Now, I'm not barking at you. I'm not holding up your shepherd as better than you are. I'm sitting under this same word that you are. I'm complaining this week because I don't have hot water. But we must, pastor and people, come back under a Christian worldview and say, we should expect it become harder and harder to be Christians, to be persecuted more and more. And not look at our circumstances or our political landscape to judge whether or not the kingdom of God is being successful. But rather keep our minds in the book of Revelation and say Jesus is going to win. I will surely suffer and I will count it a privilege to suffer for his name. Because I want to be a part of that celebration. Now let me show you a couple of other things in verses seven to 10 before we go to what hope we have for the present. In verses seven to 10, we're told a couple of things. We're told what happens just before the end and we're told what will happen at the very end. We've already looked at what happens before the end of time. We looked at that in chapter 11. It was very disturbing because we learned in chapter 11 In verses 7 and following, uh, John says that the evil one will succeed for a moment to kill every Christian on the face of the earth. And it'll appear that he has finally eliminated all Christians and it will appear that way for three days, three and a half days. And then we're told, in chapter 11, that Jesus will resurrect those. And then we're told in this passage, the one we have in front of us, that Jesus gets the last laugh and Christians get the last laugh as he raises them from the dead and he takes the devil himself and throws him into the abyss forever. And the death and devil will be no more Just before the end, it will appear that he has finally succeeded, but then the great end will come when they will be raised to life and Jesus will say, you were never succeeding and now you will eternally be condemned to your own hell. That's what's coming. The defeat of the devil himself, cutting off the head of the serpent from which all evils come. And you say, that's really good news, but what is the comfort for me right now? Because right now, I am being persecuted in my place of work. I'm losing business. I'm facing a loss, a job loss, or business loss because I've chosen to take a stand for Christ or I'm getting getting persecuted, made fun of in my school or on my athletic team. Or Christians listening around the world saying, we're getting killed for our faith. What is the hope for us now? These two things that come from verses 1 through 6. One is that Satan is bound, verses 1 through 3. Satan is bound, verses 1 through 3. Yes, Satan is, is persecuting. Evil forces are wielding damage against us. But they're limited. It's limited. We've learned over and over in the book of Revelation that uh, he protects the church and protects the gospel to the point that it continues to move forward. We learned that in chapter 16, verses 14 to 16. Chapter 17, verse 14. Chapter 19, verses 11 to 21 Jesus said it in Matthew and Luke chapter 10 when he said I saw Satan falling from heaven what was he saying I see that though Satan is active in the earth he is limited John Bunyan the puritan of the 1600s wrote a, an allegory of the Christian life he 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 made the things that are that are uh, figurative in scripture uh, literal in his dream and so he imagines, he imagines Christian who's on his way to the celestial city. He imagines Christian coming into the church. He, he becomes a Christian and goes into the church. The church is called House Beautiful. And the guide says, you need to go up that path. It goes right into the House Beautiful, the church. But, but on either side of the sidewalk or on either side of the path are lions. And, and the lions are... Are 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 clawing and, and and growling and roaring toward the toward the path, but they're chained. He says, "I'm not, I'm not going in there." And 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 the guide says, "Oh, just stay on the path." They're chained. They can only come so far. And so he makes his way up the path. He can heal, he can feel the hot breath of the lions near to him. If he flinches a little bit, they might, one claw might get a scratch on his arm. But if he just sticks on the path, he'll make it into the, into the church and he can, he can leave the church. He can go in and out on that trail and the lions will not devour him. That's the way the, the Lord has the devil restrained. The devil can 't possess you the devil can 't can 't destroy you can't can 't hinder the forward movement of the gospel, but he can oppress, he can bruise he can terrify he 's bound he 's limited we, we know that that 's true at least statistically. Philip Jenkins has done remarkable work in the last decade on the growth of the Christian church that, that Westerners don't always see because Westerners, the, the church in the West, is continuing to decline. But in the East, especially in the Far East and the global South, the church is growing. There are two billion Christians, he estimates, worldwide, growing at 25 million per year, including those who are being born to the church. That's in comparison to 22 million in Islam. Making Christianity, if these statistics are correct, the fastest growing religion in the world. If you take out the children who are being born to Christians, then it's 2.5 million conversions per year as compared to 750,000 conversions in Islam per year. The church isn't losing. Christianity is not waning. It may be in the West. It may be in America. But worldwide, it's going forward. We're not growing by conversion in America, not even in this church. It's one reason we're trying to organize ourselves better, to be more intentional in reaching our neighbors with the good news of Christ. And, and we have confidence to do so because Satan is bound and restricted. There is nothing to fear. Not even death itself, which is the second point. The second reason we should be encouraged is not just that Satan, bound, it, Satan is bound, but that saints are reigning right now in heaven verses 4 to 6 describe this. The writer of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 35 says it this way. Christians who had the Christians who had the the opportunity to be released from prison refused, waiting for a better resurrection. That's in chapter 11 of Hebrews. A better resurrection. What is that better resurrection? It's what we see described in this chapter that we're studying today. Let, let, me, let, me, let me break it down for you. The, the, the thousand years, we believe, is what is happening right. Christ is reigning right now. This is a figurative thousand years. When Christ was raised from the dead, that was the, the, the beginning of the figurative thousand-year reign of Christ. He's going to rule for a long time. Bring many to himself. And, and then there's described a first death and a second death and a first resurrection and a second resurrection. What is that all about? It's not so hard. The first death, putting all the biblical information together, first death is when you die physically, when you die physically. And the first resurrection for a believer who dies is for his soul, her soul, to go to heaven. Not a resurrection of the body yet, but a resurrection of the soul. That is, you die physically, but you continue to live spiritually. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So first death, physical death, first resurrection, spiritual resurrection, living in heaven. Second resurrection, the resurrection of all bodies, believers and unbelievers, joined with souls, and then the second death only for those who have refused the gospel, and hell follows. That's the second death. But those who have died in Christ and experienced that first resurrection and that second resurrection of the body live on forever in a renewed heaven and earth. So what does that mean for our present comfort? It means that if Christ is your Savior, and here's what happens, needs to happen if, for Christ to be your Savior, is for you to say, I cannot save myself. I can never be good enough to get into heaven. So Lord Jesus, take that that righteousness, that perfect record that you earned on the cross and put it on me so that God will look through his righteousness to see me. Take my life, become my savior and my Lord. That's what it means for him to be your savior. And when you die, you go to heaven. But this text tells us something more that we have neglected because we've all gotten so hung up on disputes over the thousand years. This text tells us that those who die having suffered for Christ, those who die having been martyred for Christ, they go to heaven, yes, and they reign with Christ. He includes them in the forward movement of the kingdom of God. And each time the devil kills a Christian or removes a Christian who has suffered faithfully from the earth, he thinks it's a victory. But what God does is give him new life and makes that Christian even more powerful and the church becomes even more powerful. So the more he kills us, the more he oppresses us, the more powerful we become on the other side, and the more quickly the church goes, moves against the gates of hell. Now, do you know that many of our Christian brothers and sisters have always seen it that way throughout the world? It's not a new revelation to them. It's only new to us that, wow, you mean to be a martyr, to have suffered for Christ? Jesus really celebrates you and says, yes, I'll resurrect, you. I'll resurrect all Christians and, and bring them to heaven when they die in me. But those who have suffered for me, those who have died for me, those whom it has cost to walk for me in this world, I celebrate them and I include them in a peculiar way in advancing my kingdom. Someone shared an article with me this week, David Brooks' opinion piece in the New York Times, when she talks about uh, at time at uh, at the at Fuller Seminary. When remember some years ago, ISIS killed a, a lot of Egyptians who were Christians. And so the the American students at Fuller Seminary were so concerned that they wanted to have a grieving service for those who were killed. The Egyptian students said, What are you talking about? We're going to have a celebration service. We're going to celebrate because these Christians were counted worthy to die for the name of Jesus, and now they're ruling and reigning. They have a better resurrection if we really believed that, would we not be more bold in moving into enemy territory? You can't do anything to us that will hinder us. Even if you kill us, we become stronger. Benigno Aquino, Filipino politician and. Philippines in 1972, he spoke out against Ferdinand Marcos's institution of martial law. He was put in prison for, for seven years. He was kept in solitary confinement until he had a heart attack, and they agreed to allow him to go to America for, for medical treatment. By 1983, he felt good enough to return to the Philippines. Now in solitary confinement in prison, somehow he had gotten a hold of a book written by Chuck Colson, special counsel of Nixon in the Watergate era. And and Colson had become a Christian in prison and he started a prison ministry called Prison Fellowship. He wrote about it in Born Again and somehow that book, Born Again, made it into Aquino's hands. And in solitary confinement in a Filipino prison, he came to Christ. So he got healed up in America, and he said, "I've got to go back as a Christian. I have to go back to the Philippines and try to talk to Ferdinand Marcos myself and beg him to restore democracy to the people." His, his friends begged him not to do that. Don't do that. You cannot do that." He insisted. As soon as he stepped off the plane, he was arrested, and in a hail of bullets, he was violently murdered. was all lost. They asked him uh, on his way back to the Philippines, said, aren't you afraid to go back? He said, no, because if they kill me, I go to be with Jesus. In three years, the people's movement, the people's power movement had succeeded, inspired by his death. They overthrew Marcos and restored democracy. Twenty-four years later, Christians throughout the country celebrated what Christ had done through him. Now use your sanctified imagination and see if you can see this scene with me. As soon as Ninoy Aquino takes his last breath, he appears in heaven And Jesus says, well done, well done, Aquino, you're a good and faithful servant. Take a breath. All right, now it's time to get back to work. You're here now to help me personally advance the kingdom. Isn't that where you wanna be? Let's move forward into the battle that we might celebrate the victory now and forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, oh Lord, pastor and people say to you, we believe, help our unbelief, make us courageous, make us bold with our witness. And help us to consider it an honor that we should be counted worthy to suffer even for your name. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and come quickly. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.